Welcome back to IQ for You. I'm Dr. Tamara Schwartz, and I'm here in the studio today with my colleague, Dr. James Norrie. And James, today we're going to talk about the sound of silence. A Paul Simon song. Yes, from the 60s. I used to love Simon and Garfunkel. Me too. Um, But who would have imagined when they were writing a song in the 60s that the words would become so relevant today? Do tell. You know, the whole talking without speaking, hearing without listening, that describes social media to a T. And so today on our show, for those of you who are out there listening, um, we're going to be discussing how risk profiles intersect with our behavior on social media and how that is impacting our world. Because technology is, it doesn't just stay out there in in the tech world. It doesn't just stay out there on the internet and it comes out here into the real world. And so we'll be right back after this break and we will carry on this conversation. So you might remember from an episode or two ago when James and I were discussing sex work and how the technology that's, that's been invented has changed people's perceptions of risk related to that. So James, talk a little bit more about how people speak online and the, the theory behind that. Well, it, it's so interesting. We were just doing a keynote the other day for a client group, and we were talking about the fact that there is a disassociative effect that happens in social media that is pronounced, and for most people is a distancing by putting the keyboard between you and what you are trying to say or do. It's a, a socially intermediated right interaction. Socially, it, it's deprived of the normal cue. So as you and I are here in, this, in the studio and for our listeners, because we're recording this during COVID-19, we are appropriately socially distanced. Yeah. But we're in the studio, so you and I have eye contact and body language and cues and clues about being in communication with each other. Inevitably, if we were to shift this so that we didn't have that, it would change the dynamic, the nature of the social interaction. So there's a disassociative effect. And then the second problem is that over time, that tends to lower people's awareness, particularly in socially harmful situations. So in situations where they have shocked somebody or hurt somebody or created some harm, they're unable to sense it because the harm is going to be created when the person consuming the post or the social media or the message or whatever. And of course, we are going to do an episode, I think, at some point on social media bullying, which we'll talk a little more about this. But this is why it's such an incredibly important social shift is it is moving us away from cues and clues that we've had in our human relationships for um, since the dawn of time. Well, and not just that, um, I think that we become less aware of exactly how we're behaving. For example, um, I've received, a couple of times I've posted newspaper articles that I found online and I receive a post from from my college roommate that is, uh, I mean, just cutting in response to having posted an article about something. And instead of going at it online with her, I'll send her a, I'll, I'll send her a private contact and I'll say, hey, I, why, why so so vicious mm-hmm. in, your, in your comment about a, a newspaper article that I just found interesting? Why, why did it become so personal when you, when you responded to a newspaper article? And, and then she would apologize and she'd say, well, you know, I, I didn't realize that I was doing that. And, um, but it, it's been interesting to me to see the damage social media can do to relationships. Right. Well, and again, it's that it's the absence of immediate feedback in the relationship. So if you were with that person 
and you had a copy of the article with you or you were referencing it in a conversation, mm -hmm. it would not be seen as personal. It's very interesting. It would be seen as a sharing, as a transaction, right? And in socially, if you looked at the, the theory around social transactions, if you are mentioning a book you liked or an article or something like that, then it's a passing reference and it's not seen as advocacy, right? right. So it's, a tra it's part of the transaction. We're engaged in a conversation. So I say to you, hey, Tammy, did you see the, um, the recent uh, Netflix series, The Social Dilemma? And I would say no, but I've heard all about it. Right. And so then I could go on and talk about it, which, by the way, I loved. If you haven't seen it, you haven't seen it, you must watch it. Um, it is very much you're, on this topic. You're the topic. third or fourth person to tell me that. Oh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm surprised you aren't all over it. It's very unusual. Yeah. But, um, but again, in this context, it's interesting. Now, had I posted that same recommendation on social media, so had I gone out and said... I think that all of my friends who are interested in social media may find this an interesting perspective on how technology platforms manipulate human behavior for their own gain. We've talked about this. Their right. business models are not about you and are not about community. They're about money for them. And and the, the series makes that point brilliantly. I won't give too much away, but I'll just tell you that there's a, a, a sort of a meme of um, three fictional characters who ultimately end up manipulating uh, the people involved directly and deliberately and it's it's kind of very fascinating. So so there it's not seen as advocacy. The instant I put it on social media, there is a perception I've staked out a position. So now let's back into this. And this is interesting because, of course, we are, thank goodness, in the very last week, literally amen, calendar brother. day, amen, <laughs> of being in a purple state during election season. So it tells you uh, the timeline of when we were recording this particular podcast, if you're listening to it later. But again, the political season has added an interesting juxtaposition to most people's advocacy, which is there is a sense of trying to figure out whether you are Republican or Democrat in what you post now, right? Because there's this unspoken word, rule, whatever, that if I'm posting something for the New York Times, what must I be? Right. A Democrat, right? I must be some <laughs> left-leaning liberal. So, so now we move it from a, a passing reference during a normal social transaction to an advocacy for a position. And then people feel free, and it's not actually accurate. I only shared it saying, hey, this is something you might find interesting. I wasn't saying mm -hmm. I agree, right. I advocate, I suggest, uh -huh. or, or worse, I take a stand, right? So when you do that, that's a different kind of transaction. And so socially, if you looked at it, this is exactly what's happening. The personal reaction you're getting is because now what is normally just a flow of conversation is interrupted by the fact that somebody thinks you're advocating and trying to persuade. And of course, the transaction of persuasion is a very different kind of social transaction. Oh, so right. uh, it's just, I don't know, yeah. it, absolutely fascinating for me. And if you stop to think about it for our listeners, if you stop to think about it, this is a frequent um, problem in social media because you will discover things about your um, friends that you might not otherwise discover actually because they're going to say and do things. That's back to this disassociation. They will say and do things on social media they would not do at a cocktail party with you, guaranteed. Right. Or in a conversation right. in your dorm room right. when you were in college. <laughs> right, right. So it's very interesting. Yeah, so it is interesting. Um, and one of the areas of study that, that I have stumbled into a few different times, um, both in my dissertation and in teaching uh, adult Sunday school, um, looking at how technology interacts with the physical world. Because... One of the things that we've found, and it's called sociomateriality theory, if you're mm. interested in the, in the academic 
language for it. That's one um, I have not heard about, so now <laughs> I'm, I'm intrigued. So sociomateriality theory talks about the, um, the connection between humans and technology, and it goes so far as to say that it becomes an integrated system. So, so this fails to, as I've talked about with my cyber-based view of the firm, this fails to be, and I'm, if you were in here, you'd see me picking up my phone and gesturing to my device. Sparkly case and all. <laughs> That's a girly um, phone. But it ceases to be a tool and becomes an extension of us. Right. And so this dynamic where we become very enmeshed with our technology, then there's this other piece to it where our social structures and our technology become mutually reshaping. And so the more we behave a particular way with the use of a tool, the more those behaviors will be carried out into the world. And so we're beginning to see this. So the caustic dialogue of social media has now migrated out into the physical world. And we see this with the very, very numerous protests. We see it with counter protests and protests and people screaming at one another. And um, it's just, it, it's, it's a little bit scary. Um, the, the, one of the things that uh, I saw this summer was um, a professor from the college in Gettysburg was talk? He was carrying around posters on the battlefield to describe the context under which various monuments were constructed. Just a poster, just pamphlets, just information. And we had about a thousand folks who were armed come to town and take up take up post where I walk my dog every day mm. and where families bring their children to go learn about history. And so there's become, there's a dialogue going on in our town right now about guns. And it's not about the Second Amendment and it's not about the First Amendment. It's about imagine trying to bring your kid on family vacation and there's more people on the street with assault rifles than when you go onto a battlefield. And this is supposed to be a nice place for family vacation. And so it's not about whether someone has the right to carry a gun. It's about the economy and how, what kind of an impact that might have on our local economy. Um, so I have actually a story when we come back from our break that I'll share about this very topic. Great. Well, we'll look forward to that. So off to a quick break and we'll be right back. IQ for You is brought to you by CyberCon IQ, a patent pending cybersecurity awareness learning platform that is based on behavioral science. CyberCon IQ understands that every individual's learning journey is different, so why should everyone receive the same training program? At the heart of the CyberCon IQ solution is a personal style assessment. By first understanding the workplace persona of each individual in an organization, CyberCon IQ then delivers a personally curated cybersecurity education that teaches employees to recognize the cyber threats they are most susceptible to. Visit CyberConIQ.com for more information on this revolutionary learning platform. Okay, and we're back. So I promised to share a story before the break. Um, and so, James, I'm, I'm curious. I think I told you this last, last week when we met. Um, did you know that people can get deployed to war zones and not be permitted to carry a weapon? You did tell me a little bit about this, and I, I found that quite a, a strange for me. 
quite a strange opening to a story, and I asked you to save it for our podcast, yeah. so now I get to hear all of it. So I'm intrigued. Go ahead. So, so how can you be in a war zone as a soldier without weapons? So my, I, I, so he, I'm just going to start at the very beginning. So <laughs> I, I got orders that I was going to deploy to somewhere in the Middle East. And, and that I somewhere went, in the Middle East shall remain and anonymous. I, right. It's, uh, at, so I went to my, to my arms training, right? I, I qualified on all my weapons. I actually was so concerned about the limited access I had to training that I went and paid for private lessons at a firing range and became very competent with my weapons. Um, go to get my, my equipment to go get deployed. I've got my orders. They don't give me any body armor. They don't give me any weapons. And they put me on an airplane and send me to where I'm supposed to go. Really? Really. So now let me tell you a little bit about the team I was part of. Yeah, please do. (laughs) So the team I was part of was led by a Fulbert colonel who had been special forces, two other guys who were special forces, several Marine infantry guys, uh, some Army intel and Army uh, cavalry and artillery guys. None of us had body armor. None of us had weapons. Hmm. That's that's the the team. That's the training that went into it. Then we go. The area where I did my operating was a place where Al Zarqawi was active. Now, for those of you who don't know who Al Zarqawi was, he um, was one of uh, Osama bin Laden's lieutenants. He organized uh, women to go in and be suicide bombers and attacked a number of Western hotels in the Middle East and um, successfully. And so when I arrived in country, the day I arrived in country, there were protests going on where Westerners were being ripped out of their cars. Mm. <laughs> Luckily for me, I was sleeping off my jet lag uh, back in my, in my room. But um, so this was, this was kind of a bizarre place, right? I mean, here I am. I'm in a very high-risk area, no body armor, no weapons to, to execute a mission on behalf of the U.S. US government. With a team of people who you associate with lots of weapons and lots of action, lots of action, exactly. And uh, so I was the only woman on this team. Well, there's one other woman who joined the team a little later. Um, The colonel who was leading the team had never had a female officer work for him. Uh, It was it was all kind of an eye opening experience for him. Um, But the reason that we were not allowed to carry weapons, and so so anyway, this area where I had to go operate. When I arrived, I was told we were told. No Westerners should ever be in this area after dark. And as a Western woman, I should never be in this area ever. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So my first couple times I was with other guys from the team in an armored vehicle. But eventually my job required me to go into this area all by myself. And I didn't have an armored vehicle. (laughs) So... So I would go down and I would get to, to where I was supposed to be. And, and in my very pathetic Arabic, I'd be like, Muharram uh, Tamara, which means Lieutenant Colonel Tamara. And, I, and I'd say, As-salamu alaykum. And, and, uh, and, and then I'd say the one word I knew, which was tadrib, which meant training. And I would gesture, I'd go, tadrib, Mohammed, Mohammed so-and-so. And they always would laugh at me when I would try and come through the gates to tell them who I was. And um. But the reason that I was not allowed, none of us were allowed to have body armor, none of us were allowed to have weapons, was that by wearing body armor and carrying a weapon, we were indicating that we didn't trust the people we were going to work with. Mm. And Social s- signaling. And exactly. And if you're going to solve really hard problems 
and have a high-performing team and be able to dialogue, you have to have trust. And so the way we built trust was signaling trust by showing up pretty vulnerable. Mm. And so that experience, when I think about it, the whole reason that we were not, I mean, our mission forbade me from carrying a weapon or wearing body armor. Mm. And so when I think about that and I think about the dialogue going on in the, in the country today where, where a poster is met with an assault rifle, that's why I wasn't allowed to carry a weapon. It wasn't because I wasn't in a, in a high threat area. It wasn't because there might not be danger. Um, but that was kind of my wild experience in the, in the Middle East. So now let's relate that story because that's fascinating and um, I, I'm, I'm taken by the fact that I'm uh, extremely happy or risk maker and it didn't cause you apoplectic kind of like, oh my God, I, what am I going to do? You know, Because I mean, as a risk maker, you'd be like, oh, well, you know, it's going to be a real adventure and let's find out what this is like. I'm going to go into war zone with no weapons and see how that goes, right? So, so you know, it kind of fits our personality, which is maybe a little sad. But anyway, uh, so I, I want to relate that because the equivalent of that in social media, which is so intriguing, is the extent to which we take our equivalent social media body armor off, right? So instead of seeing it as a combative and a mm-hmm. place where we have to defend and propagate and mm-hmm. advocate and persuade all the time, which is exhausting, mm-hmm. why can't it just be a truly social experience? Because it's interesting. Social media is rarely now about the social connection. Right. And it is so clear to me that, that your story relates because we all put on a kind of a, an armor now, if you like, mm-hmm. where we are deflecting constantly this this diatribe of inbound criticism and assault, uh, literally on social media, for positions we didn't intend to take. And so no matter where we look in, in society, I think we're fraught with this tension. The social tension is almost constant. And so it's, it's just not about this election, folks, or the particular partisan things. And it's, it's not, not about guns. And it's not about guns. It's not really about the Because there's Second plenty Amendment, of other right? weapons that are being deployed, particularly through social media, that right. involve no gun, knife kind of weaponry, but, right. but, uh, but character assassination, right. destroying people's livelihoods. I mean, that, and that's, a, that's as powerful a weapon as, as any of those, those physical things that are right. carried. And, right. So it just, you know, this, this, and this, this is where I was walking through the garage one day and suddenly I finally understood Simon and Garfunkel's song. Right. When they talk about the sound of silence, they're not talking about, you could hear a pin drop. They're talking about the fact that we're screaming into the void, longing to be heard. Mm. And the more we scream, the harder it is to hear anything around us. And yet there's this hunger to be listened to which is why everyone keeps screaming. And unless we take a step back and we, we can actually hear one, I mean, it's not enough to hear. You have to listen. And, you know, we've been doing good grief. I'll bet my students get a lecture on listening in every single class they take, right? Well, on that profound note, let's go out to our break and then we'll come back and um, deal with some listener feedback and some news items. Right. We'll be right back. This segment is presented by CyberCon IQ, an innovative behavioral science-based approach to cybersecurity. If you are joining us here at iq for You, you too are fascinated by risk and rules and by the calculus which drives our decision-making process. CyberCon IQ understands this as well. They have applied their expertise in trait-based personality theory to predict and interdict against today's cyber threats. 
Their patented personal style assessment and adaptive learning platform will empower professionals and organizations to reduce the potential cost associated with cyber attacks and will advance a strengthened risk and compliance culture within. Visit CyberCon and Q to learn more on this innovative approach. Well, welcome back, and we're delighted that you're here for the last segment of our podcast today. So I think we're going to move to items in the news, and um, I, I think speaking of um, aggressive social media tactics. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, well, that takes us straight to the Russians, so why don't we talk about the Russians, Tammy? So um, just last week, there was an article about the fact that the FBI has indicted the Russians for cyber attacks against France, Ukraine, and South Korea. Um Many, many attacks that are attributed to them, and it probably probably fodder for a whole nother podcast in and of itself. The Russians, the Russians' use of uh, well, and let's pause there for a second because I'm always amazed. And again, we are um, six days from the presidential election when we are doing this podcast, but I'm constantly amazed by how we have taken something as obvious as Russian interference in Western democracies. Now, let me be clear. I said Western democracies. I didn't say the U.S. I include the U.S. in Western democracies. But your list of countries is fascinating because you have France and South Korea. And then let's throw in for good measure, uh, it's, it's arch rival and enemy, the Ukraine, which, you know, is part now of the EU. So we can, we can add them to the list. So I don't know why it's, it would surprise anyone. And I hope that our listeners will take this not again as a statement at all about partisanship. It has nothing to do with that. But you would be foolish not to take all of the evidence that exists. It is not fake news that the Russians have always had an intention to disrupt Western democracies because they're a political threat. They're, they're literally um, diehard enemies that have been that way since the Bolshevik Revolution. And here's what I find interesting. If we go back in history, long before social media, we had disinformation campaigns, right? They have a whole part of the KGB that does nothing other than disinformation campaigns. And and they used to have to... They used to do doxing before they did... Right. They would create fake physical documents right. and then you would find them in the person's drawers in their homes right. and right. all kinds of stuff. Exactly. So. so so these are tactics that have simply been honed, uh, honed over and, century well, and and scaled. <laughs> century. And, but and scaled. So what's so interesting is not only honed but scaled to the point where they are with social media, they're easily done with with AI. You can create them like that. You can propagate them like that. I mean it's it's a gift to people who want to interfere with democracy. So, mm-hmm. uh, again, I hope our listeners will be mindful of that. This is not something that um, you want to take for granted. No, not at all. Well, with that, uh, we'd love to hear from you. So what do you think about our uh, topic today? You can reach us at iq for you at cyberconiq.com. We would be delighted to hear from you. You can send us an email or an audio file, and we'll see you next time on iq for you Tammy, have a great day. All right. Until the next time. Keep your game on against the con. This episode of IQ4U is produced by me, Chris Perez. Editor is Abigail Spar. And special thanks to our co-hosts. All rights are reserved for this podcast to CyberCon IQ, Inc., can listen to this podcast for free on any of your favorite platforms or by visiting us at cyberconiq.com.